Hey. <laughs> Welcome to the News Through Podcast. My name is Isaac or Shrek. And today we are chatting with another legend, Spiro, from another part of the globe. This time it's former MasterChef contestant or two time MasterChef contestant, Harry Foster. Uh, I ask him, what are some chef skills every Spiro should learn? What are the main kitchen utensils missing from most Spiro's arsenals? And what are the biggest mistakes Spiro's make with fish in the kitchen? Um, we have a really good chat and uh, there's a lot of detail in here about caring for your catch, particularly after the shot has been taken. Harry, complete gentleman, absolutely frothing Spiro and a really cool bloke. Got to meet him at the opening of the Adreno store down on the Gold Coast and have a good old yarn with him. And uh, But before we get there, a quick shout out. Joe Murphy says on Instagram, he says, hey Shrek, hope you're well. I was listening to your podcast on being a tight ass Spiro with Trevor and I had a good laugh, and it reminded me of when I started off diving and didn't have a proper wetsuit for spearing. Used to get big bruises on my chest from loading my gun, and I ended up stuffing an old thong down the front of the suit, and it genuinely worked a treat. So a thong or a jandal, plugger, uh, you can just cut off the back of that, chuck it down the um, front of your wetsuit, and when you're loading your bands, put the butt of the spear gun there on your chest. No more bruises, my friend. Uh, so thanks, Joe. Massive shout-out for you. Joe Murphy... 353 on Instagram. Big shout out. Um, wanted to tell you just quietly too about noobspiro.com. Um, I don't know if you've been there. It's friggin' cool. There's mad merch for uh, frothing noobers from all over the world. Um, there's the Ultimate Guide series. There is a section there where you can leave a story. Uh, it's called the Nooba Story section. You can leave a product review. You can leave a scary story. You can leave a shout out for the podcast. Whatever you like, leave me a voicemail. But, hey, while we're talking voicemails, let's go and have a listen to this one from Bert at Old Man Blue. G'day, guys. Um, Old Man Blue here. Been listening to Noob Spira podcast for the last two months. I think they're wonderful. Really, really informed. Great episodes everywhere. But one just stood out, and this is even least since episode 135. Shrek, um, good interview there, mate. I loved it. Even as a really good Spiro, humble, really sounds like a nice guy. And had some terrible experiences. And one was with a grey reef shark in um, Fiji, which was already terrible. But the string of events after was even worse. And I think everyone should listen to this. I don't want to go into great details. But the lessons learned, he shared it so wonderful, like importance of insurance. And just to know, have a backup plan. Guys, give it a listen. This guy knows his stuff. Really nice fella. Can't say enough. Only the best. Bye. He's an absolute legend. Old Man Blue. Check it out at oldmanblue.com.au. Um, let's get into it. Harry Foster, octopus preparation, tattoos with sharks. He's a cool dude. Let's get into it. Longtime sponsor, partner, and supporter of the Noob Spirit podcast, adreno.com.au, has been with us for more than 100 episodes. And I, for one, am extraordinarily grateful. I believe there are four strong reasons to shop at adreno.com.au. Number one, price beat guarantee on any Australian spearfishing equipment price. Number two, flat rate shipping across Australia. Number three, hassle-free returns policy. It's super easy if you have any issues with your gear. Number four, and probably the best of all, you can use the code NoobSpiro to save $20 on every purchase over $200 at adreno.com.au. Now, and even now, you can use the code in-store. Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, new store on the way. It's a literal no-brainer if you're a Spiro in Australia. Thanks, Adreno. Recently, I brought some new equipment online at today's show sponsor, Neptonics.com, and I was super impressed by the quality of the packaging and the before and after sales support. 
These guys don't muck around. They make awesome, tough, dependable equipment and their service matches the quality of the equipment they sell. Visit Neptonics.com, use the code at Noob10 to save 10% on anything and everything store-wide. If you're shopping in the USA and you spend more than $99, you get free shipping at Neptonics.com. G'day Noobsbury community. Welcome to the show, but most of all, welcome Harry Foster. We've got a very well-known and very well-regarded Spiro who's um, who's made TV at, at, at some portions of his life. So welcome to the show, Harry. It's awesome to get you on here, man. Thank you very much for having me, mate. I appreciate it. Cool. We were chatting before the show, and I'm already intrigued a lot about your your journey. So from the heights of MasterChef, I would, I'm more curious about how spearfishing in particular um, began for you. Look, mate, spearfishing was um, – it's, it's always been such a massive part of my life. I guess I was spearfishing before I was cooking or um, really doing anything. I've always had this sort of affinity with the ocean, right? So I guess my earliest memories were going out in the boat to uh, the Great Keppel Islands with Dad and my stepmom and my brothers, and um, Dad was spearfishing all the time and we were catching fish everywhere. And um, That was like – yeah, I was – two years old from um, and all the way up till sort of I was an independent kid I started going out spearfishing by myself or with my mate um, just off the coast of this little uh, fishing town just north of Townsville where I grew up and um, yeah I guess that's sort of where it all started that's where uh, yeah I really caught the bug for it I suppose and spearfishing up there is pretty different isn't it like um it's it, it, as far as I'm aware, a lot of the diving is pretty shallow, and uh, and you've and you've got a pretty abundant sort of food source right there on the Great Barrier Reef. Yeah, to give you some sort of, um, I guess, idea of the conditions. Now that I think about it, as an adult, I'm like, wow, that was probably the stupidest thing you could have been doing. Um, however, like me and you know, a mate of mine, we were 12, 13. Um, we'd we'd walk off the beach just to this little shoal that was probably. I guess four or 500 meters off the beach and uh, we'd go out there at mid tide and the, in far North Queensland, the water is dirty, like 99, you know, percent of the time. Yeah. And it's awful. Um, and of course you've got crocodiles and jellyfish and stingrays and stonefish, and cone shells and everything wants to eat you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so we were like, we were, we'd take ourselves out on the best of the best days, um, swim off the beach out to this sort of little shoal and, there's only like, there was barely anything out there, just coral rubble and a couple of bombies here and there and it stretched for a couple of hundred metres up the beach. Um, and, yeah, the viz was probably five metres max on the best day that I ever saw it. Yeah. We'd take our little, um, our little floaty out there and had a little bucket in the middle and we'd just tow that around the, the reef for hours and hours on end, catching uh, crayfish and um, that's where I shot my first coral trout and, yeah, it was it's such an it was a really really um awesome learning curve for a young teenager i think and yeah that's sort of where it all properly developed for me and that's where i really sort of took interest in spearfishing so a lot of people probably think you know like um you know you're in far north queensland you you hop off the beach and you're in the great barrier reef but you've got these huge inshore sort of reef systems and and the, the dirty water um, how far off is where you start into getting to some of the more pristine reef systems and stuff? Where I grew up, uh, there's this little place called Rolling Stone. So it's about 50 k's north of Townsville. And in between, uh, like, straight, I guess straight off the coastline, you know, we've just got rocks and shoals and stuff like that. 
then the next out, you know, on the horizon, I think it's maybe like somewhere between 14 and 20 Ks out, you can see the Palm Island group. Okay. So you've got Palm Island, Havana, Orpheus, uh, and the rest. And then um, out behind them is where the proper really pristine reef starts, I suppose. Yeah. Um, because, they're, it, you know, it's raining all the time and the conditions are always never great up in far north Queensland uh, when, you get, when you're quite close to the coast. You don't really have um, those really clear, clean reefs like you do when you get offshore. So mm. if, you, if you're really wanting to dive that beautiful reef, you still have to go out quite a ways. Yeah. So the inshore stuff's got an appeal all of its own though. Obviously, you've identified a lot of the, you know, the, the hazards, the stuff that wants to eat you. Um, how do you avoid that and how do you learn to hunt in, in shit fizz? And, I mean, what are the advantages to some of the inshore stuff? Um. I think the advantages to the inshore stuff is that there's such little access to good conditions that nobody ever bothers diving it. Like I think we were the only people that really spearfished that reef. And what comes with that is firstly an abundance of species that recreational anglers don't have access to, Mm. like um, tuskfish or crayfish or you know, a bunch of other stuff. And then when you're diving on these reefs, a lot of these fish have never seen people before. So mm. as kids, we were, we were able to get close enough with our bloody rickety spear guns that were made from sticks. And <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we were able to get close to these fish and they were a lot less weary, I suppose. Uh, and that, I guess, yeah, that's probably the biggest advantage. Some people, when they start out in the water, are content to kick around and look at stuff and, you know, there's the whole, there's a huge group of tourists that like to travel through the ocean and never touch anything or shoot anything like we do. What made you like that? Have you got, is there a, do you think that you've got a, a hunter inside? Um, I guess growing up, going out in the boat all the time um, and catching fish or seeing dad catch fish mostly, that was sort of like it. I guess that was the trigger, I suppose. Like I was like, okay, yeah, I saw dad doing this and now I want to go have a go and like, I want to be my own independent fisherman, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I suppose. And so, um, yeah, going out there and catching these fish and being able to bring them back to back to shore uh, alive, you know, was a proud moment because um, there was literally everything they wanted to eat you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, being able to bring them back to shore and show my family and be like, yeah, I, I think it was actually more of like a showing my mates how good I was. <laughs> Just that's honest, like, man. Yeah, yeah. That's a bit honest. While you, while you guys are fishing in the creek, we we're out here catching crayfish and yeah. they're all too scared to do it. It was just me and my one mate. Did they think you were mad? Yeah. Yeah. And, I, you know, now that I, as an adult, I'm like, wow, who let a 12 <laughs> or 13-year-old go out there? Yeah. Um, we'd see sharks and uh, there's crocs there all the time. We never actually <laughs> encountered – I never had a bad experience with a shark or a crocodile or a jellyfish or anything like that which now that I think about it was probably really lucky because there was such an abundance of them. Yeah. Um, you know, luckily, I never really had a, a bad experience with any animals out there. With the crocs, are there any mitigating factors? Like are, are there things you can do to uh, – because from my understanding, like uh, from doing the croc interviews years and years ago now with Turbo, was that, you know, you can have a system where someone's on a boat basically watching for you and then you, you have a, an elaborate system for signalling, like banging the bottom of the boat and stuff like that. But if you're shore diving, particularly near the mouths of any rivers and, 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 and in inshore conditions, 
Crocs will go, yeah, because um, if you're out to sea, they're less likely to because they like to drag your corpse back to their their warren or whatever the hell it is, and then and then basically eat your rotting remains. Um, but in an inshore reef, I heard that that is actually something that they may do. Well, what's your yeah. take on it? Um, I've never really like I've never seen a crocodile portray predatory behaviour. I've seen them like a lot in the wild, like the house that I grew up on backed onto the saltwater estuary that um, that I guess the community was based off. So we lived where the freshwater met the saltwater and there was crocodiles there all the time. And I never have seen a crocodile like pursue an animal or uh, look at humans or like want to target anything. I've never seen them predate anything. So I guess for me growing up, I was never, I was never convinced that what we saw in TV and in the movies was accurate. Yeah. Um, I personally, like we would, actively um we would actively seek out the crocodiles sometimes which now that i think about it is awful uh, like ridiculous um like we were just kids in the tinny and even dad we'd like try and drive up and get as close as we can and drive through the creeks at night with the spotlight and stuff like that just to just to look at them yeah um and yeah like I, I never really had a bad experience with them so when i was out there i suppose i never thought about the the risks and what you could do to help protect yourself from crocodiles. We were, we had no chance if a crocodile came up to us back then, like we just had a little floaty and um, our stinger suits. Like there was nothing stopping a crocodile from taking us, but yeah, I never really, I've never really been in a situation where I've seen crocodiles portray that behavior. Um, and so it was never something that, it, that was on my mind, I suppose. But mm. as, as an adult, I look back and I'm like, wow, the risks are so high and like it could have gone so wrong so many times. Yeah. Um, and like even uh, there was a story last year of this guy getting bitten on the head on Lizard Island. And this is like an island group that's well off the coast and pristine reefs and the water's clear as crystal and it's beautiful. And the last thing you'd think is somebody getting going for a snorkel and getting chomped on the head by a, a salty. Mm, mm, cheaper so. But, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know, like – if you're shore diving, I suppose there, that's one of the risks that you you have to take into consideration that that could happen. And I don't think there's much stopping a crocodile um, from coming up and having a taste if you really want to. Yeah, yeah, right. So, I mean, those early days, um, you and your mate, sounds like the blind leading the blind a little bit. You guys just got in and had a crack. What were the obstacles you, you encountered, like, uh, you know, in terms of equipment and breath hold and hunting and all that sort of stuff? We had absolutely no idea what we we're doing. Like when I and when I say that, I mean that one hundred percent. We had these rickety old spear guns, and we'd go out there. The visibility was shit all the time, like less than five meters. Um, we'd go out there with our little floaty, and uh, we'd just swim around for hours and hours, and then we probably missed thousands of fish just from lack of experience and and breath holding and free diving wasn't a thing back then. Like there wasn't any knowledge available to us online like that was probably what i'm 27 now and this is pushing you know 14 years ago i suppose Mm. um so that was like back when youtube first started and yeah there was no access to information on spearfishing techniques or breath holding or safety or anything like that and i think the the idea of uh, being a certified freediver um, and, and like learning how to hold your breath was so far 
beyond from, I guess, where we were at the time. And like it was, yeah, it felt like a, like an olden day thing. Yeah. And social media, like now now I look at least probably a thread at least once a week probably like how can I improve my breath hold and yeah, there's lots of opportunities to have people, even really, really experienced people comment on, you know, equipment issues and all sorts of stuff and um, you've got Northern Freediver I think is a Facebook group in the, in the far north. Um, are you yeah. part of that group? Yeah, yeah, and I have been for many, many years. Mm. There's a good community vibe on there at times. I, um, I've enjoyed following along on the on the group's journey, and uh, and uh, those groups, like with you know those Facebook groups, and your spearfishing, like as long as there's a decent culture on it, where you can ask apparently silly questions, like they're a great <laughs> they're a great place to go. Um, yeah, some of them are better than others, though. Indeed. I think the, the problem with those Facebook groups is there's uh, a lot of people that love to take the piss and a lot of people like, um, I don't know what it is. It's like some sort of syndrome that, <laughs> uh, like some sort of testosterone syndrome that uh, people get where they uh, they love to gloat about how good they are. You know, when somebody new comes along or when it comes to sharing information or something, they're like, all they want to do is take the piss. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. there's a, a big divide where of how good it could be uh, and where it is now. I think um, yeah. the community is definitely coming a long way <laughs> as we speak. But, uh, yeah, that's the problem that I have with those groups. And so I, I sort of tend to avoid posting anything on there or if I have questions regarding spearfishing stuff, I'll ask people privately rather than sharing in those groups because I've never really had a good experience. <laughs> There's a few. There's a few factors at play. Like definitely, tall poppy syndrome is one of them. But um, but also, yeah, I hear what you're saying in terms of that cultural thing. I mean, that's a big part of why I started the Noob Spirit podcast. Like, um, there's just so much ego attached to stuff, and it's just kind of stupid and short sighted because it's like, um, who is teaching these people and who's teaching them the right way? And you know, like exactly connect, right, yeah. connecting noobs with um with the experience and wisdom from experienced people like yourself is like. Like it just makes sense. Like why learn everything the hard way? Like and 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 you know after you've been spearfishing for five or six years, your your ideas about sustainability and looking after the resource and things like that they all change dramatically, and and your knowledge sort of grows with it. And why not share that that, that those lessons and knowledge learned? Well on. I, th- I think what you're doing is great because in like even in the name Noob Spiro, you're you're tailoring to a community that is catching people that are. Starting off, they they might not even have an interest in spearfishing, but you could be the first point of call for them, and they're sort of engaging with it and learning. And on the other hand, you've got people that have been spearfishing probably for twenty years. Uh, I assume that are listening to your podcast and still getting information out of it. Um, and I think that's really fantastic. And it sort of it takes that sort of male ego out of it um, and helps people get a better understanding of. Um, spearfishing techniques and ideas and in an environment where it's not there's no judgment and there's no sort of like you know there there's nothing nothing to gloat about or no but nobody's better than anybody else yeah. and i think that's really great about what you're doing yeah thanks man you know there's a, there's a there are a portion of these guys that have been listening for years and years and like sometimes people reach out to me they've been spearfishing 20 years they still listen to the podcast and they still learn stuff and and that that you know the journey of spearfishing is one of self-mastery you know and like, when does that stop? Like in any sphere of life, like if if you're an idiot, you stop learning. Like if there's, you know, every day is a school day, mate. And that's what I try and live by. Yeah, yeah. And like, you just don't know what you don't know. And I mean, none of us, 
know everything, so why not keep learning, I reckon. Talking about learning, <laughs> um, we'll get away from social media, but I want to revisit some stuff with you. Um, not too long ago, you shot your first footballer. Now, um, you identified in your post, so I really like how you sort of educate when you when you, you're really active on Instagram and and you do it right. Like, I'm shit at it. <laughs> I, I, I'm terrible at Instagram. But I was going through your page this morning, actually, and I was looking and you shot your first footballer. I remember seeing the photo. And um, it's a blue-spotted coral trout. Basically, um, during a, a specific phase of its life, um, from my understanding, it's kind of a little bit like um, the Super Saiyan 1. And uh, then they, they change <laughs> phase again and they go to Super Saiyan 2 and they look completely different again. But um, tell us about your first footballer and and um, how you manage that. So I only I've been wanting to shoot a footballer from like since I was spearfishing as a teenager, and I haven't seen that many. And I've had a couple of close calls where I've either been able to I've been in front of the fish and I've been able to um, line up a shot, and you know I've either missed the fish or it just wasn't right. Um, and so like that sort of builds to the the mystery or the the wanting to be able to successfully land one of these fish, right? And so, um, and I, I think as well, I I see the footballer as like this special one. Yeah. And like it's just a normal coral trout, right? Mm. But it's just a special colour. So it's like that makes yeah, it yeah. a little bit more uh, exciting to catch. Um, and so, yeah, I was out on uh, with a couple of mates um, off one of the reefs out in the Cap Bunker group, so like Southern Great Barrier Reef. And there was a bunch of trout around and right in the middle of them, there was this footballer just sitting there and I was like, I've been looking for you for a long time. And it was <laughs> so bright and it was so vivid and I was just staring at it. So I dropped down and it was probably only in like, I don't know, maybe seven or eight metres. Yep. And I could see it so clearly from the surface. And I dropped down and it just swam, it pretty much swam straight onto the spear. Oh, I love <laughs> it. Was it. Like, it just started swinging towards me and I was like, wow. <laughs> it was a bit anticlimactic after all the years of just frothing and dreaming about shooting one. Yeah, there was barely a hunt to speak of. I literally sat down on and poked it in the head. <laughs> um, but no, I was very happy and very proud of that. And uh, I'm not when – I, when I spearfish, I guess my ethos for spearfishing isn't about – like I don't hunt – I don't go out to hunt specific um, species or – like I don't go out with a goal to um, catch a certain fish on that day. For me, it's sort of like an opportunity to get food and have a good time and to get better at what I like to do, like to just build that hunting aspect and work on my free diving. And um, I'm just obsessed with the ocean in, in every single aspect anyway. So uh, being out there, whether whether I've got a camera in my hand or it's a spear gun, it's still a good day for me. So, yeah, I don't go out with the idea of I have to come home with a wahoo or I have to come home with a footballer or anything like that. It's, it's sort of like I take the opportunities that I'm given and that are presented to me and whether it be a bloody slaty brim or whether it be a 15-kilo Spanish mackerel, I'm happy either way. They're all sort of bonuses on top of the experience, I suppose. Yeah, I love it. You mentioned photography. Now, your dad was a photographer. Is that where your sort of passion came from? Yeah, so dad was um, – he's worked in uh, TV and in film for most of his life, I suppose. He started off in photography and um, when I was growing up, he worked for a television station and then in my teens, he ended up moving into um, cinematography and he did a, a bit of stuff with 
um, this production company called Digital Dimensions, which is now Biopixel. Um, I'm not sure if you go if you're familiar with them, but they shoot pretty much all the stuff that's relating to like the Nat Geo documentaries or BBC or uh, even a lot of the David Attenborough documentaries. It's a production company that shoots pretty much all the Great Barrier Reef mm. stuff uh, and like a lot of stuff, um, ocean-related things. And so I got to grow up uh, alongside filming um, the really cool sequences and these shots that were used in these beautiful documentaries Yeah, um, and getting a really close-up or really – interesting view of how animals work and like different shooting techniques and what looks good in, in a camera, I suppose. So that's probably where my passion for photography really came from. Capturing those those David Attenborough moments on film is seems to never go to plan a lot of the time though. Like, you know, like yeah. Spiros would be lucky. Even the photographers and videographers, they, they would capture a greater proportion but like it's very hard to get even a, a decent proportion of the amount of cool shit we see actually onto film. Is that your experience? Exactly right. Like um, it is so hard. You, they reckon you should never, ever work with animals. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, yeah, it's, it's so hard to not only get into a position where you get to see something incredible, whether it be like swimming with a humpback whale or filming a school of fish eating a bait ball or whatever it might be. That's hard enough just finding one of those in the first place and then lining up shots, making sure that your camera is on and you're, you've got a memory card in and making sure that the lighting's right and you're coming to the right side of the bait ball so where the sun is shining through the, the water and makes it actually look good mm. or visibility. Like there's so many things that make those shots almost impossible. Um, if you watch, uh, I think it's Our Planet, um, one of the most recent Attenborough documentaries, watch the making of uh, the series because it's it's mind-blowing. And you see these guys that are, uh, I think they were in, I can't remember where, where it was, maybe like Siberia or somewhere like that, and they were filming these tigers that have barely even been filmed before. Yeah. Um, and they're out there for years just trying to get these uh, shots that might last for something like eight seconds mm. or 15 seconds and they literally spend months and months and months and months secluded in these tiny little cabins in this snow-covered <laughs> uh, forest uh, just to get this tiny amount of footage. And yeah, it's from, Shot from like huge telescopic lenses and, and the, you know, the miles and yeah. miles away, yeah. And it's, it's so cool to be able to see that and you see these shots and you're like, wow, it was worth it. <laughs> So with your with your photography journey, I mean, having your your dad like sometimes people that are like twenty five steps in front of you are difficult to learn from though. So what about your own fo- photography and videography um, journey? Like, what was some of the, I guess, some of the key learnings you made along the way? I guess from from my journey, I don't I don't think I really learnt a lot from dad. I think I probably picked up how best to shoot a mantis rib or anything like that it was more so of oh wow that's a really cool shot i'd love to be able to do that so i took myself out and then i you know i had a camera when i was like i don't know six years old and i was pointing and taking photos of shit but then when i was i guess moving into my later teens when i was living on the reef uh, um, i 
got my first GoPro and I had a professional camera and that's when I really started teaching myself how to use a camera, how to get good shots. And then um, when Instagram first started, that's that was sort of the real platform for me to be able to engage with other people that were interested in photography and then that really helped me learn more about it and um, and want to get better at what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, Insta- probably Instagram and Instagram was a, the biggest kicker for me in terms of photography and videography and um, sharing content. Yeah. It's a very instant reward, isn't it? And you're not having to really edit too elaborately or if you are, it's like, you know, maybe a one minute of footage or, or a little bit less. Like it's a bit more yeah. less. It's a it's a lower barrier to entry. Like I just edited this bloody video I did from the South Australia trip and um, it's 35 minutes long. It took me three days to edit the thing. I hate like, editing. <laughs> oh, mate. It was, it was so fun, but the trip was so cool when I just had to do the video. And then I, I uploaded the video to YouTube and I used um, royalty-free music. And then it still flagged mm-hmm. two songs. And, uh, well, it's flagged three songs. I legitimately used a portion of... Um, 10cc dreadlock holiday but it's it's i had to use it for this this one sort of section of the film because the the guy's movement like he was coming up from a real deep dive in a a sinkhole and his shoulder roll just it had to be 10cc dreadlock holiday so anyway it's been flagged and i don't know if i'm gonna have monetization issues but anyway my, my point is is like um yeah instagram um makes it a lot easier because you just you're not worried about too much editing you just you're just doing the job. Exactly right. Yeah. I Last year I did a bunch of, I think I did like nine or 10 catch and cook videos because I was like, I'm going to become a YouTube star. This is my like go-to. I came out of MasterChef and I was like, I'm going to make a catch and cook YouTube channel. Um, didn't go as well as I thought it was going to be. Mm. <laughs> uh, but the videos that were anywhere between 15, 20 minutes long, yep. just editing one of those yep. literally took me two days. Yep. And like, and I found myself going out, specifically to film a video and then coming back, having to spend two days editing on it and then I'd watch it back and I'd be like, oh, it's shit. I missed this shot. I could have got this and I should have done this. Yeah. And then now I look back at the editing, I'm like, wow, you had so much to learn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and you should have done this and this and this. And, um, yeah, I just stopped making videos. I wasn't in a – and I started working and I wasn't in a position to make videos anymore. And now I'm like, I don't know if I want to – properly try and film and produce these catch and cook videos at all by myself anymore. It's just too hard. That takes the joy away from it. Man, I can relate. I can relate. I love this video here I just did. It's the best one I've done. But it's it's a long, long way from where I want to be. And you know, you you film, then you edit and you go, I'm missing this, I'm missing this, I'm missing this. And no one, when they're starting, ever films the right B-roll or enough B-roll. Exactly. But you, what you what you end up with is oodles and oodles of shit that just you never use for anything. And you've got hundreds of gig of footage, but none of it's useful. And then and then so you go out the next time and you improve incrementally. And and every time you do it, it's this incremental improvement. This video. Like I'm proud of it right now. In six months, I'll look back at it, and I know my attention to detail is not perfect because I just I like getting stuff out there rather than being a perfectionist. Because yeah, I value getting shit done more than I do perfection. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Give me some criticism. Oh, good. I, I, I'm the eighty twenty dude. You know, like I'll, I'll, I'll do twenty percent of the work for eighty percent of the result. I'm not, you know, like 
that that's 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 what I'm doing. I feel you, man. I feel you. Yeah, and, and I think I, I hear what you're saying. Cinematography is very much a learn and burn model. Like it's just far out. It's 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 frustrating. And um, podcasting is much easier. Uh, <laughs> long form conversations with people that I like, and we just riff and talk about fun stuff. It's um it's far easier. But um you know, like it depends on on what you like doing. I guess like time and energy, opportunity costs are huge things when you're a talented person with lots of opportunity, like you, Harry. So um, what are you wanting to spend your time on? These days I'm not really sure. I'm sort of – I've never really been sure of what I wanted to do, but I've done – I guess I've done a lot in my career, a lot of really cool things. I've had a lot of really awesome opportunities, but I've never known what I wanted to do. And I think that's because, firstly, maybe I'm like partially ADHD, so I'm like it's hard for me to, um, to focus on things for long periods of time. Um, and so I, th- I think that that maybe comes into it probably the majority of it. Um, but like, I, I, I don't have that thing that I don't have a goal at the end, if you know what I mean. Yeah. My, the way that I sort of, um, my professional career and sort of my personal life, I suppose I live very in the moment. And like I, for instance, I was just working in the Great Barrier Reef. I was working, I had an amazing job on this Island where I was cooking for max 12 people a day and that was fantastic and uh, I literally just resigned last week <laughs> um, and now I'm off on a, another adventure and I guess it's sort of like a, a gypsy lifestyle. I don't really have a home, so to speak, of. I live with mates most of the time. Yep. Um, and, yeah, it's. I, I think what I get from that is I'm always in a position where I'm having an amazing time or an amazing adventure and I treat life as a holiday Mm-mm. and I, 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 uh, I don't, live to uh, I don't work to live I live well no the other way around I don't live to work I don't, <laughs> I don't to live, live to work I, I work to live you know what I mean yeah I get what you mean man That's I 100% get it and so yeah I'm just always into having a good time and and I guess living a bit of a nomadic or gypsy lifestyle is sort of part of that yeah um, and I, I just love being able to experience new things all the time and keep my brain engaged because if I sit for too long on something I get bored Lobster bags, cray loops, gauges, accessories made by Spiros for Spiros. Check it out at oldmanblue.com.au. Equipment made to last. Are you in the market for a new spear gun? Killshot Spear Guns has got blue water wahoo tuner guns, open track spear guns, enclosed track spear guns, rear handle enclosed tracks. Check them out at killshotspearguns.com. Even better, I've got some good news for you. You can save $30 on any Killshot Spear Gun at killshotspearguns.com. Use the code NOOB. If you're in store, just say crikey, mate, or say Shrek from the Noob Spiro sent you, and you'll save $30. Ed Martin at killshotspearguns.com. Check him out. I guess despite your lack of specificity with regards to, you know, like a career choice, you, you have... Um, been ambitious enough to to do some some big things in your life so far, and um, you know, like you've skilled up, you become a cocktail master, a photographer, and a, you know, an accomplished spiro, a lover of the reef and ecotourism. But I, I really want to dig into your chef skills, and 
you know, as evidenced by, you know, your couple of seasons on MasterChef and some of the phenomenal dishes you made, I want to focus in on Veterans Vault today, basically on some of your chefing journey. So would that be all right? Yeah, totally. Cool. All good. So just walk me through how being a chef became part of your life. Do you know what? I think it started, I guess dad would never cook. Um, and my mum was sort of like the cook in my life, I guess. Um, and so she, like in any conversation, she'd be the first person to tell you that my inspiration for cooking came from her. I don't think it did. <laughs> I think it was, it was, it went hand in hand with my spear fishing journey. Going out on the reef, being able to come back with crayfish or coral trout or tusk fish or whatever it was, I found this profound interest in connecting the catching to the cooking, right? So being able to go out and put, take home a crayfish and being able to turn that crayfish into something that just really makes everybody in the room go, holy shit, that is delicious. Yeah. That was like the this the first part of the reward was catching the crayfish. And the second part was being able to share it with people and be like and and see the enjoyment on their faces from eating it. Um and so it was like a, it's like a double whammy, right? And I think it, yeah, my passion for cooking definitely started when I started spear fishing because I'd come home and I'd have these dinner parties and or just even cooking for my parents um, and just seeing how much they enjoyed it made me like it so much more. Yeah. Man, yeah. there's so many places to dip in and find just a love affair with the spearfishing lifestyle. Like, you know, there's, you know, the spearfishing side of things where some people geek out on gear and they just love it and people mm-hmm. do the free diving or the hunting and the, you know, I love talking to people that love every facet of spearfishing, you know, and a lot of a lot of spiros I find, and this is I'm not leveling criticism at everyone, but I I find that that dis sometimes they can be a little bit disconnected with the caring for the catch side of things because you know when yeah. you spearfish, if you live in an abundant fishery, there's never any shortage of fish, so it tends to lead to this idea of these two or three recipes that we just make and that's what we do and. And, it, and exactly we, don't, right. we don't really get outside of that. I've got a cool idea I want to chat with you, but what's your take on that? Um, I've had the – I've been very fortunate enough to – I've had work experience in on a barramundi boat in far north Queensland, so catching wild barramundi using gill nets um, and seeing the process of, you know, between setting a net and actually getting the fish to the fishmonger. So I've seen that side of it and I've also been very fortunate enough to work with a, a good mate of mine um, Chris Bolton up in far north Queensland um, and he's a like a premium line fisherman um, and stills his fish for restaurants all around Australia but these fish are like you know you they go from being caught and a week later you can have a look at these fish and they look absolutely identical to the moment they came out of the water wow and I, that was a massive eye-opener for me because I was like I see and I've, I've been brought up seeing how people handle their fish it now that i know how they should be handled um and like the result that you can get um after after treating a fish like super super respectfully and treating it really well the way that it should be the Mm. result that you get at the end is like so so much better Mm. um so like working on this barra boat you know the barramundi had uh suffocate in the net and then we'd bring them in onto the boat and They'd get thrown in, they'd you know hit the deck and they'd be dropped and thrown into the esky and they wouldn't get bled because they they're already dead. 
Um, and then they'd sit in the in this ice slurry for days and days and days, and they'd finally get into port, and then they'd be lifted up out of these eskies and then thrown onto the ground, and then somebody would pick them up from the ground and then throw them into another esky. And the amount of bad handling that I've seen of fish, it, it was just, it hurt me so bad. And I was like, we are literally taking the lives of these fish and they're getting thrown onto the deck. They're getting bruised. They're suffocating. Um, and I, like, I'm, I'm not one that's like, you know, don't go shooting the fish because we can't hurt their feelings or anything like that. I love spearfishing so much and I love fishing so much. Um, but I, I really respect the importance of being able to treat the fish as best as we can. And, you know, there's a, uh, there's a massive divide, I think, in the fishing community and the spearfishing community. Everybody, there's so much information in the, the fishing sense. You know, there's so much technique out there and there's so much information on how to catch fish. And then there's so much information on how to cook them, connecting, connecting, catching the fish and then connect the, the space between catching it and cooking it. Uh, I think there's a massive divide. So yeah, handling and, um, and looking after your fish, I think, is massive importance. Uh, to me, especially. So layout for me. Um, so we we get we go out spearfishing for a day on the Great Barrier Reef, and um, you know we we there we're there for eight hours, and we we, we shoot um, you know maybe we shoot five or six fish each or whatever. What's the journey from there for you? Like how as soon as that boat lands on the deck? Um, obviously, you know, like I like to bleed a fish in the water. Do you feel like every fish should be bled? Uh, what about gutting and and so on? Yeah. As soon as, so as soon as I shoot a fish, I will always I target the head, of course, because you're, you're um, reducing any sort of wastage of flesh. You're reducing any uh, introduction of bacteria into the meat that you're eating. Um, and so as soon as I shoot the fish, I get it to the surface and I'll brain spike it. Um, so that fish is going to stop moving. It's going to stop building up lactic acid. It's going to stop building up stress. Um, and then bleed it straight away. So just cut the gills. I don't slice the throat or anything because that's going to, um, again, you, you're introducing bacteria into parts of the flesh or you're compromising the gut and you never really want sort of gut juice floating around in, in your fish or getting into the, the hole where you've speared. It's never really great. So, yeah, getting it to the surface, brain spiking it, just cutting the section of the gills, not actually slicing its throat or anything and bleeding it in the water as soon as I catch it. I think that's a really, really big importance. Um, and then from there, not like I won't go up to the boat and I won't throw it into the boat or I won't let it hit the deck. It, it's sort of like a it should be picked up by, you know, whoever it is in the boat or maybe I'll get into the boat if there's nobody there. I'll get into the boat myself. I'll put it into the esky, into a slurry, and like this, not with big chunks of ice or anything, with like nice ice that is going to evenly coat the fish. I'm not just going to let it sit on top of the ice as well um, and then drop the temperature as fast as possible. Uh, and then that gives you so much more time in terms of the preservation of the fish. Like it's, I'm not letting fish sit on the deck. I'm not letting the sun sit on the fish at all. I'm not letting it get hot. Um, and of course, I'm not letting, uh, like if you, even for recreational anglers, I see them sort of pull up fish and they'll let them sit on the deck or they'll chuck them into the esky before they've bled them and they're still alive and they literally are just suffocating and building up lactic acid or building up these stress hormones in their flesh, which as an end result is going to 
tarnish the meat and it's not going to last as long or taste as good as it could be. Mm. And I think, yeah, that's a massive part of when you, when you actually get an interest in cooking the seafood that you're catching, you really can notice the quality of a fish that's been treated really well and like really respectfully uh, versus a fish that's you know sat on the deck or it's been thrown into the boat or suffocated. Yeah, massive. I like it. Yeah, it's really, really important. I think, um, and that was that was a massive learning curve for me. Getting working on um, uh, working on Chris's boat in Far North Queensland, uh, all these fish are like immediately brain spiked and their gills are clipped and they're put into an ice flurry. And that was a massive, massive thing for me. I was like, wow, this is how it's supposed to be done. This is how you're supposed to treat fish, and the the end result is so so much better. Mm. That's a. I didn't realise we were going to talk so much about the, the the process between actually shooting a fish and then then and then even beginning to prepare it. Like, um, I, I, I've thought about this stuff, but you've really laid it out in a really nice specific way there, including the rationale. I, I like it. What about what about dry aging? If you're going to put fish on a slurry, how long should they be in a slurry for? Mm, I've never really uh, experimented with dry aging, but just from working on um working the boat in far north though the fish would be in a slurry until their body temperature reached zero right so like you're dropping the temperature as quickly as you can so your your fish aren't building up any anything that they shouldn't be or you know there's no degradation of the meat yep and then they're going into they're being packed into like a a sort of like a cool esky i suppose yeah where they're going to sit at zero so pretty much I guess if, if it's it's different if you're a recreational fisherman because you're out in the boat all day and your fish are sitting in the esky. But yeah, I wouldn't don't quote me on this, but I wouldn't leave your fish in a slurry for more than six or twelve hours. Like it's it's not a overnight situation. I think okay. it's sort of take them out, get them into a fridge, get them covered, keep them moist. And uh, yeah, as for dry aging, I've never really experimented with dry aging before. Um, I've seen it done and I've tasted the result of dry aging, and I think it's really really cool and it's something I'd love to explore further in the past. But um, yeah, it's another kettle of fish. <laughs> Yeah, with a slurry, like on a lot of our spearfishing boats, like generally you'll have like maybe a 300-litre esky or 250-litre um, esky, and then maybe you put in three um, bags of uh, of ice. I think it's five litres of ice per bag. Mm-hmm. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, and then – but so obviously the consistency of the slurry is going to break down over the day because just due to the nature of it being sitting on the deck of a boat in the sun – um, yep. You might start off with, say, fifteen liters of of cubed ice, and then how much? How much? What? How, what do you think the um, the salt water to ice sort of ratio should be? Uh, I think. Well, I think I think there's a couple of things that you can do, right? So if you, so for instance, you've got an esky. If it's dark blue, paint the lid a bit white. If it's going to sit in the sun in the back of your boat, um, that's going to reflect so much more light and it's going to absorb so much less heat. Your ice is going to last longer. Put Always put more ice than you think you're going to need. And, you know, you can always take it out if you need. But say, for instance, if I take uh, you know, 150 litre esky out, I'll half fill it with ice. As soon as I catch the first fish, I'll put salt water in there and just to, enough to be able to sink the fish into the ice and drop that temperature down as quickly as possible. And then if that's sitting in there, maybe for, you know, three hours or four hours while I'm out in the boat, I'll take a bit of that water out, you know, once once the ice has started to melt, I'll take a bit of that water out just to get that sort of slurry consistency back and so the fish aren't just floating around in cold water. 
Um, and just, yeah, just making sure that it's always cold, never letting like, uh, I, I see people have these spearfishing bags and, you know, those long ones that they, you know, you can fit a Wahoo or a Spanish in, yeah. um, you know, and they've just got blocks of ice in there. Like if that block of ice is sitting on one side of the fish or it's just resting up against the backside of your Spanish mackerel, what's happening to the front? You know, like what temperature is it actually in inside of those bags or yeah, what I'm trying to say is like what you want to do is really drop the temperature consistently from the fish and just get it down to zero as fast as possible because that's really going to ultimately give you the best quality and um, you know, just treat it the best way that you can. Yeah, yep, okay. I guess sometimes the other thing is is like, you know, like here in Brisbane, I'm driving for an hour, I'm out in the boat for an hour, we're out, out there for 10 hours and then it's the same in reverse. I get home at the end of the day, the esky comes off the back of the of the boat uh, the cooler, the um, chili bin, wherever you are in the world, um, the, it comes off the back of the boat and it's all slurried up. My fish are inside. Generally, like the three or four divers are all heading in their different ways, so they're transferring those fish into their own cooler or esky or chili bin. Mm-hmm. And why can't we have one word for this, by the way? Um, and, <laughs> you know, and then and then we're taking our own eskies back to our own homes. Um, what, what do you think should happen there? Because I'll be honest with you, a lot of the time my gear, my spearfishing gear just gets thrown in the garage along with the esky or the esky might come upstairs but it, but it sta- the fish stay inside till the next morning. Um, yeah. If I've got time and energy, I will generally fill it and deal with the fish before I even wash my own gear. But, <laughs> but, but, I, but I'll be honest, sometimes neither of those things happen because I'm just wrecked. Like I've been out for 14, 15 hours and I've come home, I've got, you know. Yeah, I know the feeling all too well and, like, I've, I've certainly had those days myself where I'll leave the esky till the next day and I'm just looking at it and I'm like, fuck, I don't want to fill a 15th <laughs> fish. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, I guess it all comes back to, like, it's if you're in a position where you can go out and you can catch food in the most sustainable way, like, possible, then I think it it deserves that energy, that extra, you know, half an hour, an extra hour for you to put in and be able to respectfully deal with your catch and treat it the best way that it can be treated. So just so you can get the best result and like, and it's such a massive effort for us to to go out there in the boat and be out there all day. And of course, diving as well, and then driving and then coming home and cleaning your gear. It's a, such a massive effort. And so I think just putting that extra little bit of 10% looking after your catch is just important if your buddy had a blackout on your next spearfishing trip think what would the outcome of that be do you know how to revive someone from a blackout would you even be in a position to do something about it or would you be diving chasing after a fish as your buddy sinks down to the bottom of the ocean do you know where most blackouts happen do you know what you can do to minimize your risk of having a blackout my name is ted hardy and i'm the founder of freedivingsafety.com in my free online course you will learn the truth about shallow water blackout, the myth of I don't push myself, I know my limits, I'm in tune with my body, how to minimize your risk of having a blackout, and most importantly, how to save your buddy's life if they have one. Visit freedivingsafety.com to sign up for your free course today. Dive safe out there. It's it's not even that hard. All right, let's move on from that particular journey. So we've filleted our fish. We've got these glorious vacuum-packed Fillets, we're going to start dealing with them. Um, in your opinion, what are some um, shipping skills that every Spiro should spend some time learning? Filleting is massive. You, actually, investing in a good quality knife, I think, would be the start. 
um, and making sure that it's sharp and you know how to use it. And then, yeah, teaching us, if you don't, if you're not confident in filleting, maybe that should be like, you should learn how to fillet a fish before going out and teaching yourself any more aspects of spearfishing. Because I think being able, I see, I've seen people so, so, so many times, even on MasterChef, try and fillet a fish and just hack the absolute shit out of it. <laughs> and it's like, it's it's so heartbreaking for me because I'm like, wow, that, that fish died for this specific reason or we spent so much time going out there to catch that or, you know, it travelled X amount of miles to get to where it is now mm. um, and now it's just being hacked up. So, yeah, filleting I think is a massive part. Yeah. Um, just watching YouTube tutorials, practising, of course. Um, One thing like documentaries like Sea Spiracy and um, Jeepers, what was that other one that came out a while ago about vegans and the meat, they, I don't know, I can't remember. Oh, I think there's a few. <laughs> game changers, game changers is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, 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 yep. One thing they delightfully overlook, right, they're heavy on their criticism of industrial food practices and stuff, and, and rightly so in some instances. But I tell you what, I worked in a meatworks when I was young, and we would mm. deal with cattle. And the cattle would come in one end, and then they would leave the other end in a box. And not one bit of that animal was wasted. So mm-hmm. all the offal and the guts and all that stuff would go into a department and they would deal with every aspect of that animal. The the hide would be tanned. Um, even the hoofs were mixed up and something happened to them as well. But, you know, and, 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 and I'm guessing it's the same with commercial fishing. I don't actually know for sure. Like I'm sure that their frames and stuff get used and mixed into blood and bone and, and, and but the animals get used. One thing that sometimes we can be a little bit arrogant of when we're DIY, which I love and I'm all about, you know, killing my own animals and fish and preparing them and eating them and serving them to my family. The one thing we don't really pay attention to is yield, which is mm-hmm. using using the whole animal or the whole carcass. Because, because the resource is often quite abundant to us, we have or we place le- less value on using the whole animal. Is that something you would agree with or? Oh, Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Like, uh, even I think a big one is fish collets, like the wings, right? Yeah. Everybody just fillets the fish and you see these beautiful fish getting tossed aside and there's so much meat. It's like, it's like, uh, killing a chicken, breaking it down and just taking the breasts and leaving the thighs and the drumsticks, oh, right? Leave the breasts. The rest is the best. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah. And like, to be honest, for me, there's nothing better than a, a fish collar that's been marinated maybe in like tandoori or like some sort of curry paste, char grilled on a really hot barbecue. Ooh. Like so good, so, so good. And you see, I see so many people just chucking them away. Yep. And like even with a frame, you can make these amazing, amazing stocks. And like granted, there is not that much you can do with a fish stock. However, it's so easy to get creative and like you can make chowders, you can make the base for a really awesome curry using a fish frame Pasta. and stuff like, and like so many parts of the, the head have so much meat in them, like the cheeks and the jaws. And uh, again, you see, you see guys like Josh Nyland using literally the entire fish. I think that's uh well, it, it may be technically hard for recreational people to, to do, or like people that aren't trained in cooking to, to follow those practices like you see in, in the Josh Nyland books. It's it's so good to to be able to see that and coming to coming to light now and like raising awareness. Or not awareness, but raising the idea of being able to use a whole fish and um, how valuable it can actually be because 
yeah, most of us just toss them aside. While we're talking about that, I'm going to introduce or reintroduce this idea um, called 99 Spare Recipes to the Community. Shameless self-plug here, so sorry to interrupt the interview, Harry. <laughs> but um, I want to chat about it because I want you to be involved. And so 99 Spare Recipes is, is well underway in, in, the, in, the, in the back, um, sort of being worked on as we speak. But um, I'm planning on crowdsourcing recipes from the spearfishing community and basically it's the, the purpose of the book is to help Sparrows expand their repertoire with seafood. So every recipe, the caveat to supplying a recipe is that there'll be a number of requirements with regards to um, supplying a recipe, but um, they basically require less than 30 minutes prep time because I want people to get away, particularly Sparrows, from those just the, the only the two or three recipe, the go-tos that we just slam over and over again. And um, I'm going to make it so every person that gets a recipe in the book will receive a free copy of the book. Um, Harry, we chatted a little bit about before the show, but I really would love to, um, to get you involved. Um, is the wings, the tandoori wings that you were talking about, that sounds like a like a go-to, I think, for us. Oh, 100%. Actually, <laughs> I got pictures of it on my Instagram. And I think I, I think I might have um, – I did a recipe, like a, a YouTube uh, catch and cook video on it last year. So where can um, people find your Instagram and YouTube while we're chatting about it? Uh, my Instagram's just Hasfos, H-A-Z-F-O-S. Yeah. I've got a website called offthebeatencoast.co. Okay. Uh, and I've got a ton of like seafood recipes there and we can go through them together and uh, you can choose out your favorite ones for the book. But ah, so yeah, they're all they're all just easy stuff. I For me, I actually hate spending so much time in the kitchen. Um, if I want to cook something, I want something that's going to be done fast and especially if I'm with friends or family like, I don't want to spend hours and hours in the kitchen. I want to be able to like pump something super delicious out really quickly and everyone's going to be able to enjoy it, right? Oh, I and I think that. um, that's such a good place for people that don't cook much or don't don't have that much knowledge in cooking. I think that's a fantastic place for them to start because these are recipes using the seafood that we're catching and they take, you know, less than half an hour. So I think I think the idea of a spearfishing book, great, excellent. I, I, to be honest, I don't even know if it's been done before. <laughs> I don't think it has, but um, let's break some ground together. That'll be cool, um, and it'll be an honour to have a, have have someone accomplished like you in there as well, um, Harry. So, hey, um, you, on your Instagram at hasfoss, um, I really have enjoyed just cherry picking through a couple of recipes that I saw this morning. Um, one was uh, the kingfish or the yellowtail ceviche. Um, can you yeah. walk a, a numpty like me through that very quickly? I actually made this, uh, not yesterday, but the night before for uh, a little party of mine again, and it was just so good. Um, it's one of those things that's really actually hard to screw up. So um, you're, you're literally just taking a, say for instance, uh, you're cooking for three or four people, take a 400 or 500 gram slab of fresh kingy. I like using the barrel. So like, you know, when you take your fillet off, you've got that top section that runs all the way from the shoulder down to the tail. Yep. That's the barrel. Uh, okay. And you just take the take the bloodline off and then, yeah, slice that up nice and thin or you could cube it as well and chuck it into a bowl with, you know, some cherry tomatoes, some cucumbers, some onion, uh, some chives. And then all you have to do is just marinate it with lime juice, olive oil and salt. Let it sit in the fridge for 10, 15 minutes and chucking a bit of that ceviche on top of, uh, you know, like a um, like a round tortilla chip or even there's a little cup of cos lettuce. Oh. So good. Oh. So, so good. Oh. And it's so easy. Shit. I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, you're a bastard. I don't have any fresh fish on me. I've got, I could pull something out of the freezer for tonight. Can you ceviche frozen fish? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think there's, there's some fish that you shouldn't ceviche and where you shouldn't eat um, raw, I guess, not because it's like bad for you or anything like that, um, but because texture, like texture is a really important thing, right? So kingfish is fatty. It holds together really well and the, the proteins and the meat, they like bind together really well. So when you're when you're cevicheing them, or whether you're curing them with um, lime juice or whatever it might be, um, it keeps its texture and it holds together really nicely. I sent the the ceviche recipe to my parents, and I gave them some Spanish mackerel that I caught uh, the other week, and I said, "Make this; it's going to be so so good." And they said that they made it, and because of the Spanish, it like it just has a different sort of protein composition like a flesh composition yeah yep. to the kingfish uh the spanish just entirely turned to to mush and it was yeah. like shit so um choosing the right fish is really important yep. i think i heard uh, parrot so, parrot and uh and probably tusky is really good for ceviche as well have you tried it uh i've done no i haven't done parrot fish or tusk fish in a ceviche i've done coral trout i've done uh red throat emperor before and they work really well okay um but yeah, kingfish is probably the best. All right, by far, actually. Oh, jeepers! Kingfish sashimi or ceviche, like, just seems to do well in a raw fish. My my mate Rosie, when I was in uh, New Zealand last year in the Three Kings trip, she made this uh, ceviche out of the um, the Three Kings trevally, which is a a, a trevally species I think quite unique to that part of the world. I don't even know the specific um, genus mm-hmm. actually, but they they were chopping through the pink mau mau and. Um, these fish were sort of up to sort of 10 kilo. I think the ones we sort of shot were between sort of six and seven, um, so around that 15-pound mark. Jeepers, it made such good sashimi. Like <laughs> I, ha- I ate seafood for three days in a row and generally, you know, I just can't eat that much seafood like cons- like consistently over that many days. Yep. Like I-, I love seafood but I just don't want to eat it every day. But for three days we ate a shit ton of seafood and I just yeah. couldn't get enough. I could have kept going. I don't know what it was, but um, <laughs> maybe it was just because of the talented chefs we had on board. But holy shit, we had uh, – um, the other thing I saw on your Instagram that made me excited was um, you did an octopus preparation vid. I think it went for seven or eight minutes. So you, you And basically yeah. walk us through that. Octopus is terrifying. And it's – even for me, I remember I, I used to be so scared of it. I would never buy it. I would never cook it just because I think there was so much fear, this, this sort of public idea of – that it's really hard to cook and that it's really going to be fucking chewy if you screw it up or yeah. it's really going to be, you know, it can go really wrong really easy. But from my experience over the last couple of years, I've cooked octopus a lot of times and it's actually so much easier and so much better than people think. It's like for me, I've rarely ever had like that terrible, super chewy, inedible octopus that everybody fears. I've never really seen that. Actually, I was in a, on a trip to Thailand once and I tried this octopus barbecue and it was so bad. And that's actually <laughs> probably the only time that I could think that I've ever had bad octopus. But it's so much easier than people think. If you were going to buy octopus, um, most of it comes tenderized anyway. So oh, okay. whether you're, you know, when you're cooking it in a fry pan or whether you're chucking it on the barbecue, most of the time it's going to be pretty good anyway. And it's hard to screw it up. Just don't overcook it. But I think for, if, spear rose out there or crayfishmen or anything and you're pulling out octopus tenderizing it i think is a good thing and i don't know what do you just smash it on the rocks 
Yeah, chucking it into a catch bag and smashing it on the rocks for a bit. Um, freezing also helps as well because okay. um, what, what freezing does is uh, yeah, essentially ice particles are forming around the proteins of the actual meat itself. Mm. Um, and then when the when the ice particles grow, they shoot through the proteins and they split it apart. Okay. And then so that's sort of like tenderization in itself. Um, and yeah, you're, you're going to get a better result from that. Sometimes with tougher forms of seafood, like I got introduced to the idea of like um, blanching stuff or um, what do you call it with uh, parboiling, you know. Um, is that something you would do with octopus? Like... I've heard bullshit about like soaking it in milk and all this other shit. Like, there's so much confusion I, about it. Like, to be honest, I've, not, I've never done any of that shit, and I've seen people that have done it, and the result works out exactly the same. Um, maybe a smoked octopus is actually really, really good, and for that, oh, yeah. you brine it in a, like a salt and sugar brine for a couple of hours. But in, like, if you were going to chuck a fresh octopus on the barbecue, maybe freeze it first because you're probably going to get a better result. But yeah, chuck it on straight into the barbecue with a nice marinade, olive oil, salt, pepper, a bit of lemon juice. Just let it go. And overcooking it is probably the the easiest thing to easiest way to screw it up. But just take note of like what, what's happening. Like use your fingers to actually feel the octopus. Get in touch with it, squeeze it, see like, you know, feel the the tenderness. You can even just try cutting, cutting the, the thickest part in half. I find a lot of people are so scared of undercooking things or like scared of scared of something being raw. Mm. Uh, I always cook fish or crayfish or even squid or octopus, always undercook it and then let it set aside for five minutes to rest because uh, that five minutes is going to do absolute wonders. Um, if your proteins are still going to be cooking for that last little bit of time, but you're, you're taking it off the heat so it's not going to be so aggressive. It's not going to overcook really easily. Um, and of course, that sort of resting time just helps helps everything relax and uh, get tender again. Anyway, love it, love it, awesome, man. I want to round out our veterans' fault. I feel like we've um, we've had a, a really good, big, robust discussion about lots of <laughs> lots of parts of seafood cooking. Was there anything else you wanted to add while we're here, though? Um, I think just reiterating the importance of respecting your fish and after you catch it, just again, like not letting. Not letting the fish hit the deck or clipping the gills to to bleed it while it's in the water, brain spiking it, and um, yeah, just getting it straight onto ice as quickly as possible. I think that's that's the that's the biggest takeaway for me, and I think that's one of the most important things that I've learned throughout my spearfishing journey, and even just for recreational fishing as well. Yeah, that's definitely one of the most important things that I've learned. Awesome, Harry. It's fantastic to chat with a person who just became hungry from what, watching my octopus teacher as well rather than the other <laughs> way. <laughs> the anthropomorphism in that film was just blatant, but I, I still enjoyed it. Jeepers, it was a good show. Have you seen it? Oh, so, so good. Yeah. I, I, sort of, I did walk away from it being like, did that guy just have an affair with an octopus. <laughs> yeah. But I, I guess I looked a little bit deeper into it and saw the importance of the, the message and how beautiful the story actually was. And, it, yeah, it was a really, really well done documentary. Did you see the um, the South African comedian's take on that, on that documentary? No, I haven't. Um, let me just find it. I've got it here. It's called uh, My Octopus Teacher, the sequel. <laughs> oh, um, no. <laughs> you have to watch it. It's made by the South African comedian Glenn Biderman Pam, and um, mm. it's friggin' hilarious. Like it's only about two or three minutes long, but jeepers, I 
I, I, I've watched it four or five times. I still cack myself. Um, <laughs> it's a very small group of us, I think, that appreciate it. Hey, Shrek. Jeremy here, man. I'm back. Just wanted to say the podcast is growing from strength to strength, my friend. Hoorah, man. I just wanted to say thank you for your uh, continual support from the Noob Sparrow listeners, subscribing, reading, writing, and submitting kick-ass spearfishing adventures from all over the planet. Your list is kick-ass, and Shrek, my friend, so do you. All you guys, come check out the next edition of Spearing Magazine at spearingmagazine.com. Jeremy out. What about... What about the rest of your spearfishing journey, man? I re- I'd really love to dig into. So, I mean, what's in your gear bag? I mean, you're heading out for a day off, um, and you're in far north Queensland. What's your sort of your equipment bag like? Are you someone that obsesses about gear, or is it is it very much um, sort of a peripheral concern to you? I think uh, in terms of gear, the only important things that really matter to me, everything else is sort of a bit trivial. Um, a good gun like a, a gun that's going to be reliable, I'm going to actually be able to safely and securely land the fish. So give me some recommendations, specific ones that you uh, My, I've just got a Rob Allen tuner, 110, yep. and that's been so good for me for years and years, and it's uh, unbeatable, I think. Um, I, I used a, a mate's rife, like a timber rife gun yep. the other day. That was also beautiful yep. as well. Oh, they're a nice gun. Uh, really lovely to shoot on. Um, yeah, gun is probably the most important. A good mask. I think masks are all subjective because we've all got different shaped faces. But yeah, nice low profile mask. And uh, the next would be fins. Got a pair of carbon divers. Ooh, and they nice. help me look sexy as well in the water. Yeah, no, they, no, they don't help me look sexy. They help me feel sexy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a big difference there. Some of Ray Ray Powell's designs on those fins are just phenomenal. They are a beautiful looking fin. Yeah, I've got uh, the Wahoo printed ones. Ooh, yeah, yeah. nice. Nice. Curious yeah. to know whether I'll get eaten by a shark maybe one day, but yeah, uh, we'll, we'll deal with that when the time comes. I've seen it. It's pretty common, eh? Like a lot of the fins will mimic, um, you know, the skin patterns or the scale patterns of of, of some of the the cooler fish around. And I yeah. mean, why not? Like, I mean, that's so awesome to look at. Like, and I, I guess it's a clever little visual appeal to to people that spearfish because generally we uh, we love looking at. At, at, at the texture of fish, and it's something that yeah. we're kind of uniquely positioned to appreciate. Exactly right. Yeah. What about so so gear? All good. Um, what about funny stuff? Are you you seem like a fairly uh, relaxed and and funny fella, but um, <laughs> I, I'm partial to poo stories. I'm, I tell everyone this, but um, I, but I'm <laughs> I not trying to bias your story. You don't have to have a poo story. I don't have. Um, there's plenty of poo stories, but none that are probably willing to share. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone's got one of those actually. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think funny stories, probably the first thing that comes to mind is I've seen so many times people land a fish, even like with recreational fishing as well, or like line fishing, I mean, um, landing a fish, holding it while they're taking a photo and then the fish goes mental and then they drop it over the side. I think that is so funny. <laughs> and it's it's happened to me once before and I was like, oh, lucky enough I, I had shot the fish and I'd, I got it to the surface and it ended up back in the water, but I, I got it back, thankfully. But, yeah, just so funny. Mm. <laughs> just, you're so proud of your catch and then all of a sudden it's back in the drink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my, one of my funny ones, I think, is lining up on fish and, you know, before you've even pulled the trigger, you're already visualising the picture on Instagram holding the fish. I know it sounds really sh- shallow and probably a bit <laughs> silly, 
But can you relate to that? Uh, no, mine is <laughs> I see a fish and I, I see how good it tastes and what I've, I've literally been in the water. I was having this conversation a couple of weeks ago with somebody. I've literally been in the water and planned a dish around a fish that I've literally seen in front of my eyes. Ooh. So like I'll be looking at a Spanish mackerel, for instance, and I'll be like, oh, my God, you're going to taste so good yep. on the barbecue with a nice little salad on the side and then, bang, shoot the fish. <laughs> you did shoot a big mac a couple of weeks back. Um, is that your biggest Spanish I saw? That was my biggest Spanish. Uh, actually, that was my first Spanish, um, my first and biggest. Uh, I, did, I didn't weigh it. I didn't even um, see how long it was. That, that wasn't really important to me. It was sort of I was just more stoked about being able to uh, hunt and take a Spanish mackerel. Yeah. It's just really rewarding because I've, I've seen so many of them spearfishing throughout yeah. my life and I've taken a couple of shots of them before and they're so just fast and strong and this yeah. flesh is so soft that they rip out really easy. Yeah. Um, and I guess I've never really had the proper gear before and, yeah, being able to be set up enough and set up well enough that I could actually comfortably shoot one and land it, that was just so rewarding and I was so stoked. That was my my best fish and most, I guess, rewarding moment of spearfishing. Smoked Spanish mackerel is possibly it's a, it's my top three favourite um, smoked fish of all time. So good, if hey. not if not the favourite. Just those big flakes, like you can just squeeze it a little bit, and these huge big flakes come oh. apart. Oh my god, oh. so good. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm understanding. About watering. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jeeves, it's eight. It was eight in the morning when we started this, Harry. I'm starving. I haven't had breakfast. Um, I'm not normally a breakfast eater, but you've 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 uh, you've affected me. Um, I, I got. <laughs> I want to get into the Spiro Q and A, which is our fastest sort of round of questions to exit the show. Before that, though, I just wanted to ask you quickly about the assortment of marine animal tattoos that you've been uh, starting to gather over oh. the years. Are you going to end up with a full ecosystem on your body? I hope so. <laughs> I really do. I've got a um, uh, an eagle ray on my thigh. That's where it started. Um, I love eagle rays. And then I ended up uh, just maybe, it was probably about six weeks ago, I got a tiger shark on my left arm and then a leopard shark on my right arm. Yeah. Um, I'm obsessed with them. I'm like, I'm an absolute sucker for like, really super realistic tattoos yeah and of course like i am obsessed with the ocean and i love sharks so much yeah that um, cool, and these are these are my two favorites so yeah i couldn't help myself <laughs> awesome. and now i'm like it's it's almost worrying because now i'm like okay what's gonna be next where's it gonna go what's it gonna look like in five years when i've covered in them yeah gorgonian sea fan on your left butt cheek um that'll that'll great go idea yep um, <laughs> Sparrow Q and A. So, um, oh, what's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given for spearfishing? Um, oh, just relaxing. Going, going down. Like if you're at the surface and then you dive down, you're sitting on the bottom. You're holding onto a rock or a coral or whatever it might be. Just not going with the intention of having to shoot something, because I, th- I think that fish can really see your body language and they can really, um, of course, like they're, they're built to look for predators. Mm. And so if you're displaying a predatory behavior, then of course they're going to be more skittish and you're never going to get as close as you, you will if you're just sitting there relaxed and enjoying and, and taking, in, uh, taking in the ocean. Cool. 
just letting the fish come to you. Love it. Um, I had a question prepared, but then I, I was like waiting for a follow-up one. Who is the who is your favourite person to go spearfishing with, and why? Oh, I don't know. I don't spearfish with that many people anymore. Um, I know you. I know I'm like the first person that should be saying that always dive with somebody, but I really enjoy even if I don't have a gun in my hand or I'm just going out in a free dive, love just going out and sitting there. And it's, it's like a meditative experience for me, I think, because I get to just stop. I don't have to think about anything. I don't have to worry about, you know, what's going on around me. I don't have to worry about anybody else. Um, and I'm just sitting there in the moment and taking it all in. However, everybody should always dive with a dive buddy. <laughs> too late. Always. Too late, mate. You already <laughs> ruined it. I have to put in a I have to put in a freediving safety.com ad in here now. <laughs> no, no, this, that, by the way, just while we chatting it while Harry chatted about that, um, Ted Hardy's put together a free freediving safety course at freedivingsafety.com. But I yeah, um, all good Harry. I love you honestly, man. <laughs> Could you describe what the spearfishing experience means to you in one sentence? Mm, spearfishing is the most sustainable and holistic way to obtain food and also enjoyment out of um, out of that process. I think that's what I love the most about it, right? You're, you're going out there and you're really putting your skills to the test and you're engaging with what you're catching and what you're eating and you're seeing where it's coming from and there's no bycatch, there's no interference with anything else. It's just you and the fish. And I think that's so good. Love it. I asked for one sentence and you gave me a paragraph. You've over-delivered Harry Foster. I couldn't. I couldn't. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Um, where can people come and find you? Uh, Instagram at hasfoss, H-A-Z-F-O-S. Um, you can check out my website as well, offthebeatencoast.co, and there's like a little recipe section there with um, a ton of like really, really easy recipes. Um, and if so, anybody was actually keen, there's the Off the Beaten Coast YouTube channel as well. I haven't posted there in like since last year, but there's a couple of catching cooks that are related to some of the recipes that are on the website. So if anybody wanted to have a look at those, you're more than welcome. But yeah, Instagram is where I'm most active. Awesome, Harry. Um, I've had a ball, man. I'm going to get you back. Hopefully, it might be just for a shorter interview when we when I do the 99 Spirit Recipes official launch and release because I'm going to ask people for their submissions then and. Um, it'll be Love great it. to give people a little bit of an insight into what you are going to contribute for the book and um, and it'll be cool to connect in the future, Harry. I'm looking forward to, um, to chatting with you again. I'm excited, mate. Thanks very much. G'day, guys. Hope you enjoyed Harry Foster today. Massive shout-out to Has Foss on Instagram. Super cool dude. In one week, we are off to chat with Renee Taylor from the Salt Sisters, another woman helping to serve the frothing noob female Spiros out there. Really enjoyed having a chat with her. Super stoked to bring that episode to you in the next week or two. Also, if you love the show, I'd love it if you left a review wherever you listen to the podcast. Leave us a review. Uh, it always helps. Helps people find the show. If you're telling people about us, again, it just helps people find the show. One of the hardest things about having a podcast is um, just getting the word out there to people that uh, might be interested. But anyway, again, if you if you froth on the show even more, love it if you come to patreon.com forward slash newspirit and become a patron listener. But that's it for me today. Shrek over and out. Spear safe and have fun. Catch ya. 
Today's new Sparrow podcast is proudly brought to you in partnership with Adreno Spearfishing Supplies. For your next piece of spearfishing equipment, head to adreno.com.au. Enjoy flat rate shipping Australia-wide. There's a huge range of gear, and you can save $20 on every purchase over $200 when you use the code NoobSparrow. Better yet, drop into their Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, or Perth megastores. There's another one on the way, by the way. Use the code NoobSparrow to save in-store or online at adreno.com.au. Boom. Neptonics.com, Speargun Hardware Specialists, proud partners of the Noob Spiro podcast. They make, design, and manufacture some of the best gear to land your fish of a lifetime. Visit Neptonics.com, use the code Noob10, N O O B 10. Visit Neptonics.com, use the code Noob10 to save 10% off store wide.